One of the most profound and fundamental statements in all of Scripture is the statement by Jesus found in Matthew 16.26 where he said this, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The reason why that is such a profound statement is because it boils down everything in life to what is most important and most fundamental. The bottom line, said Jesus, is to know that your soul is not going to be lost forever in hell. Now, other things are important in life. Good relationships are important because the Lord is the author of relationships. Good health is important because the Lord has given us life and breath and we should be able to live life to the fullest to whatever extent the Lord grants us health. A good job is important because the Lord uses it to provide for our needs, our families, and the work of the kingdom. So good relationships are important. Good health is important. A good job is important. But none of those things even come close to comparing to the issue of your eternal destiny. Those things, along with everything else in life, pale in comparison to the issue of having eternal life. And what is it that is the preventative or the barrier to us having eternal life? You know the answer. The answer is our sins. Our sins are the barrier the hindrance, the preventative, the interference between God and us. Thus, if we are going to, a, to avoid a lost eternity in hell, we have to have our sins dealt with before God. That is the bottom line. That is most fundamental. That is our greatest need, even if we don't always recognize it as our greatest need. This truth is driven home to us in the passage to which we come this morning. Let's resume our contemplation of Mark's powerful gospel record by turning together to Mark chapter 2, the second book of the New Testament, the gospel of Mark. The second chapter is where we find ourselves this morning. Please follow along as I read verses 1 through 12, which will form our text of focus this morning. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And again Jesus entered Capernaum after some days. And it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd... They uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise, take up your bed and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he arose took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. As we move into this second chapter of Mark's gospel, he opens it by demonstrating the amazing authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only did Jesus demonstrate authority in his words, He also demonstrated authority in his actions. We have already seen the authority of Jesus over leprosy, his authority over sickness, his authority over fever, and his authority over demons or unclean spirits. All of that is in chapter 1 of Mark's gospel. But these opening verses of chapter 2 give us what is actually the greatest display of authority possible Because here we see the authority of Jesus to forgive sins. There is a sense in which all the other displays of Jesus' authority are far inferior to this one. Think about it this way. The miraculous works of chapter 1 dealt with temporal issues, such as sickness, leprosy, demon possession, fever, etc., But this authoritative pronouncement from Jesus about forgiving someone's sins has eternal ramifications. And that is why I said that there's a sense in which all the other displays of Jesus' authority pale in comparison to this one. Who can forgive sins but God alone? This is in some ways the pinnacle miracle of, God, of Mark's gospel thus far. The pinnacle miracle of all. Let's consider it together. Back to verse 1, <clears throat> chapter 2. Mark tells us, And again he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. We saw back in chapter 1 that Jesus adopted Capernaum as the headquarters of his ministry. Nazareth was actually the hometown in which Jesus had been raised. He grew up in Nazareth. And the indication is that Jesus was going to base his ministry out of that town, the town of Nazareth. But according to Luke 4, when Jesus, after having been gone for a while, returned to his hometown of Nazareth and went to the synagogue, the people became furious with his message and tried to murder him by pushing him off the cliff on which the town was located. So Jesus left Nazareth, his hometown, where he grew up, and he chose another location for his ministry headquarters. He chose Capernaum, which is located right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, up in the northwest portion of the lake. This was the hometown of Peter, 
Andrew, James, John, and Matthew. It was a strategic location because there was a major highway that ran right through this region of the country. And people who traveled through Israel to get to Egypt in the south or any of the parts of the Roman Empire up in the north had to go through Galilee, which is where Capernaum was located. So Jesus chose to base his ministry out of this particular town. From a human standpoint, we may have thought that Jesus would have chosen Jerusalem, the kingly city, as the base for his ministry. But if he had chosen Jerusalem for his headquarters, it would have severely limited his opportunity to impact Gentiles. Not a lot of Gentile people frequented or even passed by Jerusalem. In fact, Jerusalem wasn't even near this major highway that passed right through Israel, the Via Maris. Therefore, Jesus did not choose to base in Jerusalem. He chose to base in a town that would give him maximum opportunity to impact the Gentile population of the Roman Empire as well as the Jewish population of Israel. So Jesus chose Capernaum as his headquarters, but he didn't stay there all the time. It was just the base of his operation, sort of the headquarters. Back in chapter 1, we were told that Jesus had left Capernaum for quite a while to preach to other towns. Look at chapter 1, verse 38. Jesus said to them, to his disciples, Let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. So Jesus had been gone for a while. But as chapter 2 opens, he is now back in Capernaum. And immediately, Mark tells us, he is besieged by the pressing needs of the people of that region. Jesus could not get away. For the most part, he just couldn't get away. There were occasions where he slipped away for a short time into the wilderness or somewhere. But for the most part, he was always, always uh, uh, the focus of attention. People just knew where he was. They found out where he was. And they would gather there. So chapter 2, verse uh, verse 2 tells us, Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Don't miss that last phrase. Jesus did a lot of healing during his ministry. Jesus did a lot of casting out of demons. But mark it well, his central focus was to preach the word of God to the people. He had a compassionate heart to alleviate the physical suffering of people, whether it be their illnesses or demonic oppression or possession. But he had more of a heart to address their spiritual condition and their eternal destiny. So Mark tells us that as multitudes gathered, as the crowds gathered, he preached the word of God to the multitudes. Verse 3 tells us, Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. Understand the fullness of this situation. Try to picture it in your mind. The fact that this man was brought to Jesus on a bed or a stretcher probably, probably indicates that the man had very severe 
paralysis. It is likely that he was a quadriplegic. So it's, it was obvious what this man's need was. His need was for the healing of his arms and legs. Anyone could see that. But actually, his greatest need wasn't in his arms and legs. That's the way you and I would see it. And probably everyone gathered around on that day. But his greatest need was not in his arms and legs. His greatest need was in his heart and soul. His worst problem, as uncaring as this could sound, his worst problem was not his paralysis. His worst problem, just as it is our worst problem, his worst problem was his sins. Jesus knew what his worst ailment really was. Jesus could see beyond the external to the internal as compelling as the external was. But before Jesus addressed this man's internal need, his friends needed to find a way to get him to Jesus. So we are told in verse 4, And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. This is an amazing story in the gospel records. Don't, don't allow your familiarity with it to rob you of astonishment. Allow the details of this story to grip you in a, in a fresh way, a new way. For example, think about so many people crowding around Jesus and trying to get to Jesus that they were completely oblivious to a man being carried on a stretcher by four friends. The way the story reads, no one even noticed this because there was so much of a crowd, so much of a press to get near Jesus. You would think that when the crowd saw this, they would part and, and, and form some kind of aisle or pathway for the men to carry the stretcher through to get to Jesus. But there were so many people, and there was so much confusion, and so much noise, that these four men knew that it was useless to try to get through to Jesus. It didn't matter how much they yelled to the crowd, coming through, part, back up, give us room. It didn't matter. They knew it was completely useless. So they took the man up on top of the house and actually removed part of the flat roof. And they pulled away enough of the slabs of material to be able to lower this paralyzed man. That is remarkable determination. This man on the mat was in a tragically hopeless condition, and the four men carrying him were determined to get him into the presence of Jesus. So they lowered him down through the roof. And when Jesus saw the man, when Jesus saw this man, now picture, Jesus is in the house. People are pressing on him. It's so crowded. You can't get anyone else in the door. And so all of a sudden, the, the pieces of material are pulled away. The man is lowered. And when Jesus saw the man, his response surely shocked the people who could hear him because he didn't say anything 
about the man's paralysis. Nothing. Verse 5, instead, we are told, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus addressed this man's most pressing issue first. He said to the man, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Oh, the magnanimity of that statement. Beloved, our sins, our sins ought to be the issue that weigh on us more than anything else in life. That ought to be that which preoccupies our thinking more than anything else in life. Our sins, if we really understand their awfulness, ought to be that which plagues our hearts, souls, minds, and thoughts. So to hear Jesus say, your sins are forgiven you, ought to be the most precious thought our minds could contemplate. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing and exactly what he was saying. Even though this man probably thought that his severest need was the paralysis of his body, and even though probably all the people around witnessing this assumed that the greatest need in this man's life was the issues of his health, Jesus wanted this man to understand that his severest need in life was the condition of his soul. Beloved, we don't naturally see that. We don't naturally comprehend that about ourselves. We tend to minimize the severity of our spiritual malady because all we can see is what is tangible. But the Lord wants us to see that which is intangible. He wants us, wants us to go deeper and focus on what is most important. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sent out 70 of his disciples on a short-term mission. Verse 17 of that chapter says, Then the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Do you remember how Jesus responded? He responded by saying, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Jesus was saying, you, you are focusing on the wrong thing. You are focusing on what is tangible. You are focusing on that which is inferior. What you really ought to be rejoicing about is the fact that your sins are forgiven and your future home will be in heaven. That's what is most important. That's the same kind of thing that Jesus is doing here in this story. He takes the focus off what is external, this man's paralysis. He takes the focus off what is tangible, and he puts the focus on that which is most significant. And sadly, the thing that maybe we think about second or third or fourth or fifth in our list of the thoughts that preoccupy us. Jesus spoke to the man's deepest and most significant and most distressing and severest need, which is the forgiveness of sins. 
Beloved, if we never had anything go our way in life, now I know this is a, this, this is a strong statement, but if we never had anything go our way in life, but we had the assurance of sins forgiven, we would still have reason to have joy. When it's all said and done, that's what really matters most. The man in this story, understandably, would have been consumed with his physical condition. That's probably what preoccupied his thinking 24-7. How am I going to live life? How do I live life being a quadriplegic? I'm dependent on everybody else to carry me where I need to go, to get me food, to, to help me out. He, he, he surely was preoccupied with and fixated on his physical condition. But Jesus didn't want him, nor does he want us, to be consumed with the circumstances of life. They are important. The circumstances of life are important, but they aren't what is most important. So Jesus addressed the most crucial issue of all. He said, your sins are forgiven you. I can't help but wonder when Jesus spoke these words, if he thought ahead to what it would cost him to be able to make such a statement and offer such forgiveness. He knew that forgiveness could only be granted on the basis of his own bitter and agony-filled death, his sacrifice on the cross. He knew that. Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Only the death of Jesus could provide the basis for sins to be forgiven and taken away. And that's why I said that I can't help but wonder if he thought ahead to that day when he would die and pay for this man's sins. Before we go on to verse 6, I ought to comment on one other point here in this verse. The text says here in verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he responded by ministering to this paralyzed man. Sometimes people will read comments like this in the gospel records, and they will draw the inaccurate conclusion that if you have faith, the Lord will always heal your infirmity, or always answer your prayer exactly like you want it, or he will always do for you what you request, exactly as you request it. Beloved, that is very dangerous theology. If you will study the gospel accounts closely, you will find that faith was sometimes the basis for healing. It certainly was. Other times, it clearly was not. There were times when faith had absolutely nothing to do with it. And in this case, it wasn't even the man's faith that mattered. It was the faith of his friends, ironically. So be careful about trying to build a normative doctrine around the idea that if you have enough faith, the Lord will automatically heal you or do for you whatever you ask him to do. That is sloppy and inaccurate theology, and it has led to some disastrous consequences in people's lives. But that's another sermon. Let's go on to verse 6. Verse 6 says, And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? 
Who can forgive sins but God alone? Do you realize that there's a sense in which they could have been right? What I mean is, if Jesus had only been a man, this would have been a blasphemous declaration that he made. No one, no one can forgive another person's sins. Sure, we, we can forgive people who sin against us on the horizontal level. People who sin against us and seek our forgiveness, that should go on in relationships where we seek one another's forgiveness and grant that. But that's not what this is talking about at all. This is talking about forgiving someone's sins against God. Forgiving someone's sins in a vertical way. And thus, granting that person a guaranteed entrance into heaven. No man can do that. No woman can do that. So if Jesus had been merely a man, this assessment of the scribes would have been accurate. It would have been blasphemy for Jesus to tell this man that all his sins were forgiven. But Jesus was no mere man. He was a man, yes. He was truly and genuinely and fully human, but he was, no, he was no mere man. He was more than a man. He was God in human flesh. So he had the authority to make this declaration of forgiveness. And he's about to prove that in the dialogue that follows. Verse 8 tells us, But immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus, Within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? When the text tells us that Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus, it is difficult to know with certainty how he knew that. Let me explain. We know from Philippians 2 and other passages of Scripture that Jesus set aside the independent use of his attributes of deity during the incarnation while he was here on earth. For the most part, he lived like a man and functioned like a man. But we also know that there were times when under the direction of his father, he used some of his attributes of deity, such as his omniscience. So that's why I say that we don't know for sure how Jesus knew what was going on in the hearts of the scribes. Maybe he knew them so well that he just knew how they would respond to his statement. Or maybe he was enabled to access his omniscience. But either way, Jesus knew what they were thinking. He knew what they were reasoning. And I can't help but believe that there was a sense in which he was glad they were thinking what they were thinking because it gave him the opportunity to give a powerful affirmation of his divine authority. He began this interchange by saying to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Why, why is this even an issue to you? Why is this causing you any problem? Why would Jesus make this kind of statement? Because surely, surely they had heard about and maybe even seen the powerful and miraculous works he had been doing for well over a year by this time. There wasn't insufficient evidence. It wasn't a lack of data. 
They had all the information. They had all the evidence they needed. They knew what Jesus had done, all of the miracles he had done. And remember, these were the students of Scripture, the scribes were. They studied Hebrew Scripture, and they knew about all the passages that foretold what the Messiah would do. They knew he would manifest his authority in the natural realm of creation and in the supernatural realm of Satan and his demons. And that is exactly what Jesus had been doing for well over a year by this this time, as we saw just some snapshots back in chapter 1. So the scribes had all the information, they had all the data, they had all the evidence, all the facts they needed. So this should not have been a problem for them. They should not have been reasoning in themselves, what does this man think he's doing? They should have known by now. But they refused to accept the fact that this man, Jesus, was the Messiah. You see, he didn't fit their expectations. He had not come through their ranks, their organization. So they were unwilling to believe that he was the Messiah. And certainly they were unwilling to believe that he was God in human flesh. And since they were unwilling to believe these realities, they were entertaining evil thoughts in their hearts. Their unbelief and their rejection of Jesus was heinous, and it was inexcusable. They were believing, and probably wanting to believe, that Jesus was speaking blasphemy by declaring to the paralyzed man that he was forgiven. Verse 9 tells us, as Jesus continued to pose this question to them, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or... To say, arise, take up your bed, and walk. Now, if we contemplate it, the answer to this question ought to be obvious. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven you because there is no way to verify if it's true or not. Who who can see it? Anyone, Anyone can say to another person that his or her sins are forgiven But how do you know if it's true? How can you verify it? You can't see it. It's easy to make the assertion because no one can check on you. So it is easier to say your sins are forgiven you. However, it's important to point out that Jesus did not ask the question, which is easier to do? If he had asked that question, you could make a case that it would be easier to give the man the power to rise up and walk than it would be to forgive his eternal debt of sins before God. After all, God can enable people to heal others. But only God himself can forgive people of their eternal debt of sins. But Jesus didn't ask the question, which is easier to do? He asked, which is easier to say? And the scribes knew that it was easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you than to say, arise and walk. So Jesus is about to prove that his declaration of forgiveness was not some kind of empty declaration. He says in verse 10, But so that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go 
to your house. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He prefaced the healing with the statement, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. In other words, Jesus was saying that he was about to demonstrate his divine authority and power in a tangible way by healing the man so that that it would verify his authority to forgive sins. If he could give this paralyzed man the healing and strength to walk, then there was really no way they could argue with his declaration of forgiveness. So Jesus healed the man instantly. Verse 12 tells us, Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Once again, beloved, I encourage you not to let your familiarity with this story rob you of the amazing nature of what Jesus did for this man. Think about it. Jesus not only healed the man's paralysis, which would have been miraculous enough, he even enabled the man to be able to walk instantly. No exercise, no physical therapy, no no, uh, activity to, to increase or regain strength. You could almost say there were two miracles here. Because if Jesus had only healed the man of his paralysis, the man still would have had to build up the strength to use his limbs again. But there was nothing progressive about this miracle. It was instantaneous. The paralysis was healed, and the limbs were strengthened. So the man stood up and walked right out of the place to his own house. Can you imagine the astonishment? Mark tells us they all were amazed and glorified God. Now, if we only had Mark's account, we, we might assume that this is a good response from the crowd. Well, it, it was good, but it didn't go far enough. What do I mean by that? Luke tells us that the people of the crowd made this comment. We have seen strange things today. What kind of comment is that? We have seen strange things today. They were filled with wonder and amazement. But there is no indication that many of them, if any of them, had true faith in the Savior. They were enamored with the power, but not enamored with the person. Just like everyone in this story, they were focused merely on the externals and on the wrong thing. They were focused on the miracle, but not the meaning of the miracle. What was the meaning of the miracle? Jesus made it clear. The meaning of the miracle, according to the words of Jesus, was to demonstrate, now get this, the whole point here was to demonstrate that he had authority to forgive sins. This should have made all of them clamor to Jesus for forgiveness, right? I mean, think about it. If Jesus did this miracle to prove He says, I'm going to prove I have authority to forgive sins. He does the miracle. 
then you would think that the response would be, everyone would say, well, Jesus, forgive my sins too. We don't read any of that in any of the gospel accounts. Think about this. Here is Jesus stating that he miraculously healed a man to prove that he has authority to forgive sins, and yet we don't read about anyone in the crowd seeking forgiveness from Jesus. No one. The house was filled with people. So it's safe to assume that some of the people heard what Jesus said about proving his authority to be able to forgive sins. But the story seems to say that they marveled at the miracle, and who wouldn't? A paralyzed man getting up and walking away? They marveled at the miracle, turned around, and went back to their own homes. What spiritual insensitivity. What a lack of awareness of the desperateness of your need. Jesus can forgive your sins, but you walk away saying, we've seen strange things today. That is a major misfocus. And a major missed opportunity. Think about it, beloved. There is Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven you. I'm going to prove to you I have the authority to forgive sins. Rise up and walk. The man walks away. Here's your opportunity, crowd. Here's your opportunity to fall at the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, take my sins away also. But we don't read about anybody, anybody doing that. They were completely unaware of the desperateness of their need. Just like us, so often. So let's, let's bring this story home and make it personal. Let, let's each of us here ask ourselves this question. Am I, am I aware of the desperateness of my need? Or am I just aware of my circumstances and how hard they are, how difficult they are, how trying they are? Do you realize what your greatest need in life really is? Whatever your difficulty in life, whatever your misfortune, as, as serious as it is, I don't, I don't mean to minimize it, but whatever your difficulty in life, whatever your hardship, it doesn't compare with the importance of knowing with full and absolute assurance that your sins are forgiven. It doesn't compare. Jesus has authority on earth and in heaven to forgive sins. In heaven there will be no need for forgiveness. In hell there will be no possibility of it. Forgiveness is only while man is on earth and we're all on earth. All of us in this room right now, that's where we're at. So don't wait until it's too late. You can have the joy and peace and assurance of forgiveness if you will call out to the Lord Jesus, cry out to the Lord Jesus, receive Him, receive His salvation, receive His forgiveness. So where is your focus? On your external problems in life? external issues in life? In what are you rejoicing? Maybe you're, maybe you're not walking through a hard time right now. Maybe it's not, your focus isn't on problems. So in what are you rejoicing? Remember, Jesus said rejoice 
because your names are written in heaven. Rejoice because your sins are forgiven. Let's bow together as we close this morning. As you bow your head and close your eyes in the few minutes that remain, ask yourself those probing questions. What is your preoccupation in life? What, what are you focused on? What are you fixated on? What is most important to you? Your external circumstances or your internal heart condition? In what are you rejoicing? That life is going well? You've got a, who knows, maybe you've got a new job that's a really good job or some new situation in life is certainly appropriate to be thankful for those things. But Jesus said, rejoice because your names are written in heaven. That's the source of our joy. That's the source of our rejoicing. And it ought to be our focus. If you're here today and you don't have complete, full, absolute assurance that your sins are forgiven, then really nothing else matters in your life. Nothing else is, is really important in your life. You have to know. You have to know with absolute assurance that your sins are forgiven. And the only way you can know is to know that you have received Jesus Christ by faith. So if you have not, or there's any doubt in your mind, right this moment, right there where you're seated, in the quietness of your own heart, ask Jesus Christ to forgive your sins. Ask him to come into your life to forgive you, to cleanse you, to save you. Tell him you want his salvation, the salvation he purchased on the cross. So you can have the joy of forgiveness of sins. Oh, Father, please help us to be fixated on these issues, to be focused on these. This is not natural for us. Just, just like the man in this story and everyone else around in the story, our, our natural tendency is just to focus on all the external things. And we don't deny that they are important. Our circumstances in life are important. They, they matter to you. But what matters most to you, Father, and what should matter most to us is our spiritual condition. Are our sins forgiven? Father, I pray for anyone hearing these words this very moment whose sins are not forgiven and therefore don't have that assurance, that confidence, that joy. May your Spirit draw them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ so that today they receive him and receive his forgiveness and receive the assurance and joy that comes with that. This is our prayer together in Jesus' name. Amen.